Hello, welcome to Catholic in America. My name is Father Michael Nixon, and I'm your host. And today we are so excited to be joined by Dr. Christopher Kayser, uh, who is the co-author with Matthew Petrusik of uh, this awesome book that just came out from Word on Fire. And it is Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life. Uh, so, Chris, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here. So uh, you are a professor of philosophy at uh, Loyola Marymount University. Um, Yes. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your background that led you to becoming a philosophy professor. Well, I never planned to become a philosophy professor, but I had to I did find that I was really drawn to philosophical questions. Even when I was young, I remember seeing something written on a wall one time when I was, I think, in fourth or fifth grade. And it said, can God make a rock that God cannot lift? And I started thinking about it, and I said, well, God is all-powerful, so he can do anything. But if he can do anything, then could he make something that's greater than he is? Because God is supposed to be that than which nothing greater can be conceived. So I didn't know what to say about this. It seemed like God could do it, and then God also could not do it. So I started to think about questions uh, that really later I would call philosophical, actually pretty pretty early in life. That's pretty good. My, I think in, in fourth grade I was thinking about uh, if I was a Ninja Turtle, which Ninja Turtle I would be. Um, so that, that's, that's, <laughs> that, that's pretty fantastic. You're asking questions about God and meaning and existence. And I think that, that really definitely dovetails nicely into, into uh, the topic of your new book. Um, so with this too, obviously Jordan Peterson um, is an author that uh, that there you know seems not have a, a an unpu- unpublished word about him at least um, you know, as far as people different people's opinions. He's definitely been a, you know voice of of reason and controversy and and, and struggle and his own struggles ha- have definitely been something that he's he's publicly dealt with. Um, so what led you to uh, to begin uh, this conversation um, with Matthew uh, about writing a book about Jordan Peterson? Well, I had run across Jordan Peterson's lectures on Genesis, and I was really struck by them because he was making uh, these classic biblical stories so relevant and meaningful for people in our own time. And his approach to it was not so much to look at the, um, you might say, the ancient sources or the original languages, but rather to approach the story as a classic exposition of universal human conditions. And so I really was attracted to that. He calls it the psychological reading of Scripture. But I was aware that other people in the Catholic tradition, people like Origen, people like Augustine of Hippo, they too had interpreted Genesis in in a similar way. And so I was very drawn to this interpretation. So I kind of started writing about it and thinking about it. And a colleague, Matt Petrusik in theology, uh, we started talking about it together. And we kind of came up with an idea, well, we should— make a whole book about this. So we kind of divided it up where I took, at the first part of the book, Peterson's interpretations of Genesis. Mm-hmm. So how does he understand the story of Eve, the story of Cain and Abel, the story of the Tower of Babel? And then what Matt did is he looked at uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, runaway best-selling book, 12 Rules for Life, and he brought that into conversation with the Christian tradition. And then at the last chapter, uh, we co-authored that part, and that basically is looking at Jordan Peterson's uh, newer book called Beyond Order. And again, the idea would be to look at what Peterson's saying, to put it in dialogue with the Christian tradition, and to show, at least we believe, how Peterson's trajectory of thought finds a completion in Christianity. That is to say that if he follows his own thinking out to his logical conclusion, it seems to me at least that he would conclude 
that he should be not just someone who tries to live as if God exists, but someone who tries to live as if God exists and therefore follows the way of Jesus all the way into the church founded by Jesus. Yeah, I, I think that's it's interesting, too, that he's been such a phenomenal bestseller. Obviously, his YouTube videos, that's where most people kind of got to know him um, with uh, just that were were several hour long lectures on 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 the biblical stories on Genesis on the creation narrative on Abraham and the fact that that's, this was speaking to people who often were very secular maybe who people people who weren't didn't consider themselves religious oftentimes uh, young men um, who uh, maybe kind of felt alienated from church I think that's definitely something that that brought him up on a lot of people's radar within the church, um, Catholics or, or Christians or, or Jewish believers as well, um, that begin to consider him seriously because obviously he's a psychologist and, you know, uh, uh, practices in a clinical, has practiced in a clinical uh, uh, psychotherapy as well. But for him to have these conversations about myth and meaning in the Bible um, and to have so many people voraciously consuming it, that had to be, I mean, that that's kind of still kind of surprising uh, to me. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I, I think that one of the things that drew, made me want to write more about him and, and talk about him and learn more about him is the many people who say a version of this. Um, I was an atheist. I thought the Bible was just stupid, you know, uh, idiotic stories told by people that were ignorant. But now, you know, Dr. Peterson, I've listened to your lectures, and now I can see how the stories of Genesis are unbelievably important and that we can t today learn extremely important lessons for living a good life if we take seriously these classic stories. And it kind of makes sense, right? Because the older a story is, the more likely it is that that story has lasting value. I mean, if you think about a story that ha doesn't have lasting value, maybe it's told in one generation, and then people, the next, the kids of that generation are like, this is stupid. Why are we, why are we talking about this? And they don't tell it again, right? So Genesis, you might say, is a story that has real staying power, real legs. And it is a story that is, uh, again, even to today, a story that's retold. And, and I think part of Peterson's genius is not to misunderstand what the Bible is trying to do. There are some people who think of the story of Genesis as if it is a contemporary science text. Mm -hmm. And uh, Peterson thinks that's a big mistake, and I totally agree with him. I think to understand what Genesis is getting at, what we need to do is put Genesis back into its original context. We need to understand Genesis as a rival story of creation to the other stories of creation that were circulating in ancient times. And if we do that, I think we can really learn what Genesis is trying to teach us. We can learn important truths like these other stories held that the universe arose from a chaotic battle between rival gods, rival deities. And Genesis is putting forward a very different message that the universe is not chaotic, but rather orderly that the universe doesn't arise from a battle, but rather from spoken, intelligible words from God. That the universe is not the result of, um, you know, this this disorganized chaos of battle, but rather is intelligible and orderly. Now that's not science, but that belief is what gives rise to science centuries later, because scientists begin their investigations with the belief that the universe is orderly, that we can come to understand the laws of nature, and on the basis of that belief, they do their investigations. But if you don't have that belief, if you really thought the world was just a chaotic battlefield, well, you would never try to do science because you think, well, it's just there's no, no order to discover here. It's just a chaotic bunch of, bunch of stuff. So Peterson, I think, is really helpful by both not 
trying to turn Genesis into something it's not, because Genesis isn't trying to be contemporary science, but also by showing how what Genesis teaches us is, in a way, giving rise centuries later to science. And I think that's something that maybe a lot of people, a misunderstanding that many people can have about uh, Christianity, Catholicism in particular, but the, the entirety of the Judeo-Christian tradition um, that Peterson starts with. It's interesting in his conversation on Genesis, and you go into this in depth, that he, he actually looks at kind of the retelling of the creation story in the beginning of John's gospel, the very, very famous prologue of John's gospel where it says, in the beginning was the word, which is the, the, lo- the logos, the, the logos, which That's is right. where we get the word logic and, and, and you know, rationality, all these sort of things um, kind of come from that. So this understanding of, of, of logic, rationality being at the foundation of the universe uh, was revolutionary for its time when Genesis was written, obviously, and I think continues to be something when we start to understand that we can we can find meaning um, as a foundation of our existence in, in the midst of the chaos that we're often faced with. I think that that's maybe one of the reasons why this resounds so profoundly with people. Yeah, and I think you're right, Father. There, there really is a kind of mix. So Genesis is not naive in thinking, well, everything's order. Hmm. There's no chaos at all. I mean, Genesis recognizes there is chaos, right? There's a snake in the garden, and there's a fall, and there's this misstep that Adam does and Eve does, and they they end up suffering very much from detaching themselves from God. And I think in a way, what uh, we can learn from the story is about Adam and Eve, uh, not just as figures from, you know, a long time ago, but Adam and Eve as really representative of man and every woman. When we sin, when we turn away from God, what happens? Well, what happens typically is we blame other people, right? So when God comes to Adam and says, you know, what did you do here? You know, Adam says, look, the woman you gave me, she caused me to sin. So he blames God, right? It's your fault, God, you gave me this woman. And then he blames her. And you think how how classic this is. I mean, how many people when they're accused of wrongdoing start pointing fingers, oh, it's not my fault. You know, my parents didn't raise me right and the government is bad and they have a million excuses. Right. And so Genesis really is, I think, capturing something universal that, you know, this is also human experience, right? When people do what's wrong, not always, but very often they want to pass the buck and blame somebody else. And, you know, Genesis is really highlighting this. And then, too, that that the result of that, of you have sin and then kind of like all the resulting sins, right? what, what we call original sin in the, the Catholic Christian tradition um, is, is so important for understanding the brokenness in our human condition. And, uh, and, and without that, then, you know, we're always kind of left floundering. If we don't understand that we are created good by a good and loving God, yet sin has entered into the picture that, as you said, the snake is in the garden. And uh, because of, right. of, 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 of saying yes to that sin, both the sin of our, our parents, but also our own personal sin, that leads to so much of, of the brokenness in our own hearts and our own lives. And beginning to take some ownership of that, I think, maybe is that first step. Uh, towards uh, towards conversion that that I think Jordan Peterson kind of can open us up to. No, I think that's right, and he he's really big on emphasizing that I think the reality that all of us have ideals that we sometimes fail to live up to, and I think that's true of literally everyone walking on the face of the earth. If you have ideals, especially if you have high ideals, you're going to fall short of that. Now the question is, what are you going to do if you do fall short of those ideals? And one option is the option Adam took, right? Where he says, hey, it's not my fault. It's God's fault. It's my wife's fault, society's fault, the government's fault, whatever. But I think what God was doing when when God was questioning Adam, and then also when he questioned Eve, I think what he was really doing wasn't trying to gain information, 
like when God says, Adam, where are you? I don't think God is like ignorant and doesn't know where Adam is. I think God is more like a mother who runs across her, you know, three-year-old kid with uh, chocolate cookie crumbs all over his face and, you know, says, hey, Johnny, did you get into the cookies like I told you not to? Did you get in there? And now the mom's not asking for information. The mom obviously knows the kid's been into the cookies. The point is that the mom wants honesty out of the child, right? The mom wants the child to restore the relationship by at least owning up and being honest and taking responsibility for what, what has gone wrong. And so, again, the story of Genesis, you might say, gives us a, a, a bad example, what not mm. to do. <laughs> but, but you might derive the good example from the opposite of that, right? So when we fall short of our ideals, it seems to me that what we should do is to be honest. And whenever we fall short of our highest ideals, and that's another way of saying we violate our consciences, that's another way of saying we're violating God's law as we understand it. And so when we do something wrong, I think it's very appropriate to be honest with God. And we Catholics are very lucky because we we have a, you might say, a way of manifesting this honesty and a way of correcting pride, which is you don't just go in your you know private room and say, I'm sorry, God. You do do that. That's great. But you also have the great opportunity to go to confession. Uh, virtually every Catholic church has this on Saturday, where you're going to talk to God and you're going to talk to a representative of the community who will tell you in God's name, I absolve you from your sins. And what a great uh, you know, ministry that Jesus left for his church to enable the church to continue to be restored and move forward in a positive way. So, you know, part of the reason I wrote the book like this is I, I'm such a big fan of Jordan Peterson and and I think really the world of so many people that uh, enjoy his work. But I do think there's something missing, like, for instance, confession. I mean, I think this is a hugely important thing. And if you don't have confession, I think the the ideals that you would get from trying to follow God become so difficult and so onerous mm. that someone might just kind of give up and say, look, I just can't even do this. Forget it. Whereas confession gives you a chance to restart you know, reset. It's like declaring bankruptcy. Like say, okay, <laughs> I, I can't pay this debt. I got to declare bankruptcy. But then you get restored to a fresh start and a fresh beginning, which is really, you know, a very beautiful thing. Absolutely. And it's something that you highlighted was was the example of Abraham. Obviously, he spends a lot of time with all the kind of the, those biblical stories throughout Genesis. Um, and, and you all reflect on it in the book, too, that um, Abraham is someone who constantly is falling short, you know, who who's, who's always uh, upheld as this model of faith. And he is that model of faith. But it's in the context of, of his own his own weakness, his own fears, his own, um, you know, falling, you know, falling short of the ideal of, of the relationship with God that he's been invited into. And in spite of that, that God continues to be faithful, continues to pursue a relationship with him. And uh, and I think that that to me is such a beautiful example of the whole story of the Bible of, uh, you know, I've heard it uh, of, um, you know, um, Heschel's phrase of God in search of man, you know, that that God, it's not that we're so perfect that we perfect ourselves, that we reach God is some sort of, you know, state of state of, 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 of perfection and bliss beyond any sort of sins. It's that in the midst of our brokenness, that God goes in search of us. And that that's, that's really the whole story of the Bible kind of, kind of in a nutshell. And I think it it begins to transcend even maybe some of, some of those things that Peterson are, are pointing out as far as, you know, uh, uh, responsibility and, you know, progress in, 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 in virtue of, of some sort towards this relationship that actually transforms us. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's, it's the relationship and it's a relationship that really is God's gift. So if you think about 
you know, in Scripture, it talks about divine adoption, right, to become a child of God. And if a, if a baby is adopted as a child, that is the gift of the parents, right? That child becomes a member of the family, not because the baby won the contest in the orphanage and like, oh, this baby was like the fastest crawler or something, and therefore we adopted this baby. Well, no, babies don't get adopted because they're the best or they won a contest. They get adopted out of the goodness of the heart of the parents who adopt, who adopt a child. And so the same thing's true of us. We're adopted children of God. It's not that God loves us because, oh, you're so amazing, and then you earn God's love, but rather that God loved us first. And it's it's true that we have a role to play, um, but it's a little bit like this. Um, I didn't give myself physical life, right? My mother and father caused me to be a living being. Now, once I'm alive, I do have a role to play in preserving that gift, right? I could damage my health. I could even kill myself, and I could undermine that gift that my parents gave me. And in a similar way, I'd say that God gives us the gift of eternal life. And we receive that normally in baptism. And this is our way of moving forward with our uh, divine adoption. Now, again, it's important to continue to fall in God's way because it's possible to damage or even, God forbid, to end that life that we've been given through a mortal sin. But again, God is so merciful, he gives us a remedy even for that. So so I do, again, I... I that's one of the things in Peterson's work that that I hope he develops, that I think he does a really clear-eyed job about the ideals and the responsibility, and I think that's absolutely terrific. But another part of the puzzle, you might say, is the mercy of God, mm. right? The fact that God, even when we sin, and so, you know, we're willing to ourselves of that mercy and to be open to that mercy and to accept that mercy. A correlation that, that you make, which I thought was fascinating, because for those that don't know, Jordan Peterson always has always been kind of, I don't know, sort of coy or whatever you want to say about, about his own religious belief. Um, you know, uh, when he asks if he believes in God, uh, uh, basically the response, I try to live as if God does exist. Um, I think I heard an interview that he was given recently where he does talk about there's some sort of practice of the Christian faith um, uh, where him and his wife do go to a church uh, local to them. Um, but you make the connection between, uh, in, in the book, the connections made between him and C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, obviously a very um, uh, profound, much like like Peterson, uh, a profound thinker, uh, an intellectual, uh, a, a professor as well, uh, who is very much an atheist and then eventually has his conversion to Christianity, becomes one of the great apologists for Christianity. So his understanding kind of corresponds to, uh, with Peterson's understanding with uh, the, the Bible as myth. As this, not as in as untrue, but as in this 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 story by which we under, derive meaning for for you know the present world. We kind of you know those those mythic tales that that form the foundation of who we are. Um, but but Lewis has a difference of the further step of this is myth that has become fact. This isn't just a story that we tell that helps us to understand things. This is a story that God has entered into the story in time and space, particularly through the incarnation, um, and that He actually becomes He is the principal actor, the pr- principal character in this story. And so this myth become fact. And, and maybe seeing this as, as something that, that C.S. Lewis was able, a bridge that he was able to make, and maybe that, that Peterson isn't, isn't quite there yet, or maybe, maybe he is in, in, his own, in his own heart. Yeah, the, you know, I, I don't know where Peterson is. We, we had a conversation um, in September, and it's not yet uh, public. It's, uh, it'll be on his YouTube uh, station uh, probably this month or next month. But in any case, you know, he it's unclear to me exactly, you know, where he is at the moment, but it does seem that he's really someone who's uh, an honest seeker, mm. and he's really trying to figure out what's true. 
And I think that if he continues on that journey, you know, he'll grow in understanding the truth. And and really, that's a journey we're all on. I mean, all of us, regardless of our faith, are all called to continue to grow in terms of love of God, continue to grow in terms of goodness, and continue to grow in terms of seeking the truth, which ultimately uh, is God. And so God reaches out to us, I think, in different ways. And one way is through stories. So you talk about a story that there's some stories that are true and some stories that are that are not true. So you might say there could be such a thing as a true myth. Now, sometimes when people see myth, they think, oh, that means it's a false story. But you could have a story, myth, not a false story, but rather a story of universal human significance. That's what I think is at least one understanding of what, what a myth is. And if we think of it that way, the what Peterson's trying to do is highlight the uh, truths that are found in Scripture. Mm. Now, again, I'm not sure myth is a, quite the best word to use, because, again, for many pe- people, they think, oh, myth means just a stupid made-up story. Kind of pejorative sense uh, of it that, that most people hear. Probably. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, so I think it might be better to say a story that has universal human significance. That might be a little better way of uh, – so we don't get into the problem of myth defined as – you know, something that's that's false. Absolutely. I, I want to get into his really his grappling with his own suffering for himself and, and his family and then and then maybe open up some more questions about uh, potential for conversion. Uh, but just just his his uh, really corresponding and and being accepted and embraced and embodied and, and so many young men. I think I think is 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 really important, and I know that's kind of been used as an attack against him for, for various reasons and all the sort of political culture wars that we're in nowadays. But so many young men, guys that are eighteen to twenty five, so many of whom have left the practice of religion if they grew up Catholic, or grew up in a Christian household. So many of those guys have no longer consider themselves Christian, you know. Um, and so to think that's that the struggles are still there, though now they're finding this voice of reason, of personal responsibility, of growth and virtue, of turning away from selfishness and laziness and lust and deceit, so many things that we would call the sins. So what, what is it that he's doing that's that's appealing to the hearts of men? And maybe something that, that uh, for us within the church, Catholics or Christians um, who are seeking to, to share the gospel, to live the gospel, that we, we, we can take as, as, as a, uh, just as um, an example for us. Yeah, I, I think you're right that there are these critics that say, oh, Peterson's appealing to young men, and therefore he must be a terrible guy or something. I, I kind of think this is a bizarre criticism, because the fact is, if you look at someone who's speaking to groups, uh, they always have an audience, and not all audiences are the same. So if you look at the audience that, say, Oprah Winfrey had, right, when she had her television show and stuff, I mean, that audience is going to be 90 plus percent female or the audience that Ellen DeGeneres had for her TV show. Again, that's going to be like 90 percent female. Is that a problem? Does that mean Ellen and Oprah must be terrible people because mostly women uh, appreciate what they're saying? That seems like a bizarre, just completely bizarre. Or if you use a different example, people that there's a kind of audience for people that like the NFL. And that's not the same audience as people who like to listen to classical music. Now, there's some overlap, of course, but those are just two different audiences. So I just think it's kind of a bizarre, weird critique to say, Mm -hmm. well, his audience uh, consists not exclusively, but there's a lot of young men that like him. Therefore, what? Therefore, he's a bad guy. Therefore, we should have nothing that appeals to young men. I mean, it just seems like a really bizarre critique that reveals something about the critiquer. 
It's almost as if, well, young men are so bad, such a horrible group of people, they should just have nothing mm. that they like. They should just watch Oprah or something or Ellen. And if they don't like that, tough luck for them. That just strikes me as a bizarre critique. Um, now, the fact is, though, his his reach is beyond just uh, young men. There's all kinds of uh, other kinds of people that like him, too. And why is that? Well, I'd say there's a combination of things. One would be when you listen to him speak, you get the impression that he's someone who's trying to tell what he thinks is true. And that, I think, is very refreshing because, as you know, we listen to so many people that are kind of like the White House press secretary. And they just come out there and they say whatever you know people want to hear. And there's really no effort to search for the truth, to try to articulate the truth carefully, to revise their view. It's just sort of talking points uh, on a press release or something. So he doesn't do that. Um, he also talks about issues that people care about. And he talks about it in a way that is very, uh, I would say, attention grabbing. So, for instance, he speaks very regularly about the way in which faith and reason relate to each other. And his view is really something that's very much a Catholic view, that faith and reason are ultimately compatible, that faith and reason really can work together. And I think that is something that, because it's a refreshing uh, point of view, I think that also kind of appeals, appeals to people. And then finally, I'd say he's a little bit like Thomas Aquinas in that he draws on all these different sources of wisdom to try to come to deeper insight. So I'll talk about, you know, secular psychology, and then I'll talk about the Gospel of John. He'll talk about evolutionary history, and then I'll talk about 20th century history. He'll draw on the novels of Dostoevsky, and then I'll talk about uh, poetry and art. So he's got this, you know, all these different things kind of in conversation. And I think that's also quite fascinating for people. So, you know, for me, at least, um, I'm very happy that he's doing the work that he's doing. And, you know, I really hope that he, again, continues his journey forward and continues to develop his views. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful, frankly, that at the end of the day that, you know, he's going to be in a better place than he is now. Chris, in, in, in y'all's book, you, you deal with um, something that, that's come up a lot recently, particularly with his new book, 12 More Rules for Life from, from uh, Jordan Peterson. Um, with his own suffering and kind of uh, recognizing like, you know, how do you make sense of this and how do you find for him thinking of like, you know, the ultimate test of, of the first book that he, he he wrote, 12 Rules for Life, and then his his second book as well. Like how, how does, you know, when you have incredible medical problems that are beyond your control, um, seeking answers where he couldn't find answers, his wife um, going through um, some some pretty horrific suffering as well. Um, with medical conditions and all the emotional, psychological strain within that, having to go to a different country, I think they ended up in the Ukraine, um, you know, seeking treatment for these things. So in the midst of that, um, being able to find a uh, perhaps an answer. And, I, and to me, it seems like since since that time, the past and, and obviously there was all the all the pressure from society as well. And so many critiques being uh, leveled to him from from every direction. Um, that it's, it seems there's kind of like some breaking points that, that he reached. And I'm wondering too, does, does that become uh, kind of the first steps towards a, a deeper experience of faith as well? And I know you've, you've spoken to him recently. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. He really did suffer uh, horribly. And, you know, he still to a degree is suffering. I mean, he has, I think, good days and bad days. So no, I, I feel very sorry for him. I mean, it would be unbelievably difficult to go through half the suffering that he's gone through. But then you add on the suffering of his wife and the suffering of his daughter, and it's it's really quite horrible. Uh, 
What he says is that what we need to get through suffering is, uh, first of all, truth. So he says, one of his quotations is, truth is the antidote to suffering. He says elsewhere that we need a high ideal and, and we need to take on responsibility to bear the suffering of life. And elsewhere, he says that beauty is what's going to help us to get through the suffering of life. And finally, in, this, in his book, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life, he talks about the love of his family that really somehow enabled him to get through all this terrible suffering. Now, when he talks like that, uh, you know, what I see is really different ways of talking about God. Because what is God but the foundation of all truth? I mean, didn't Jesus say he's the way, the truth, and the life? Uh, what is God other than the highest good, the ultimate ideal that we're all seeking after? Uh, St. Augustine of Hippo spoke of God as the supreme beauty. And then finally, as Christians, we certainly believe that God is love. God is an eternal mm -hmm. communion of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving each other from all eternity, and then inviting us to expand that community of love and join their community of love. So when he talks about truth and beauty and goodness and love, I just see this all as different ways of talking about what we as Christians would call God. And I think that that's maybe to the invitation that that um, that you and, and uh, your co-author, uh, Matthew Petrusik, and, and, and Bishop Barron ha have been doing, um, everyone at War on Fire really has been doing it, re reaching out to him and seeking to make those connections that I think are so important. Because I think so many people maybe don't have a connection yet to church or to God or to religion. Um, and they're, they're finding that kind of lifeline in, in Dr. Jordan Peterson, um, that in a sense that, that this is the only direction because you're going to suffer. And I think, I think Peterson makes a great point of that, you know, that, that life is really difficult and, uh, that you're going to suffer. So in a sense, how do you find meaning within that? How do you find truth and beauty and love in the midst of that. And that is at the very heart of, of, of Christianity, um, which is, you know, Jesus on the cross, you know, God's answer to, to suffering is that he enters into suffering with us and somehow redeems it. And that's not a, that's not a quick and easy answer. Uh, but to me, that's, that's, that's the invitation that, that any person who's, who's facing life with all of its struggles and difficulties uh, needs is invited to come to, to encounter. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I think if there's anything that you learn going through life, it's that there's uh, crosses and difficulties and suffering. I, I I don't think there's anyone who's lived even a decade who <laughs> can report that's been just, uh, you know, all blue skies, everything great all the time. I mean, that's not human life at all. Um, but despite the suffering, I think we can find some share of happiness now and hopefully perfect happiness in the life to come. And the way to find, I think, um, some happiness now and perfect happiness in the life to come is through love, right? Through loving God, through loving our neighbor, and through loving ourselves. I think it's really love that enables us to, you know, bear this load and move forward in a positive way. And I think a lot of what Peterson's saying is different articulations of that kind of insight, right? The idea of taking responsibility is just another way of saying to do things out of love for the good of others. And that's that's what taking responsibility is. So, so, no, I, I'm very um, happy, really, to have a, had a chance to write a book about him and to understand his thought more. And it, it really, it's helped me really grow and, and develop my own views on all kinds of things. And, and something you may, we can kind of uh, close with this uh, is, is the possibility of, of this, this, these faith conversations. I, I was listening to an interview that he gave with, and I might be saying the name, name wrong, Jonathan uh, Pago, who's, who's an iconographer up in Canada, 
and they had a beautiful, wide-ranging conversation about faith and meaning and Jesus as the as the the perfect human, the ideal um, human person to which we must strive. And basically, the language of iconography, which is really and, and uh, Dr. Peterson was very emotional throughout. Um, and 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 and, and I think also to the recent conversation that he had with Bishop Barron. And um, that that um, one of the transcripts of one of those interviews is, is in the book. But thinking too, like what what does it take for someone who's in a sense who's thinking about this from every single angle, you know, who, who's thought about it? And, and and I'll put this idea before you, just 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 see your thoughts, because because um, I was talking with some priest friends uh, when I was taking some classes this summer up north, and one of them said, like, I don't know if he needs another philosophy conversation. I I think he he. Uh, he might need like a life in the spirit seminar, need, 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 need like, you know, somebody to just pray over him to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That kind of like, you know, just just fall to your knees and confess that, you know, Charles DeFoe called a good example of that, of, of when he was searching and searching and searching. Finally, the priest is like, you don't need to ask any more questions. You just need to confess before God. And uh, so, so yeah, so uh, just that thought of, 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 of what is it that maybe he's, he's still looking for, or maybe he's already found too. Again, you know, I'm, I'm not here to solve his problems, but again, but when I hear someone who has so many touch points with faith. Um, it's always that invitation of, of want them to experience uh, the fullness of the faith uh, that is ours as followers of Jesus, and particularly as, as members of the church that Jesus founded, the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. You know, Joseph Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict XVI, was asked one time, are there many paths to God or only one? And his answer was, there are as much to God as there are people. So I think in a certain way, all of our paths are distinctive and personal and unique. So in my own case, I'm married. So my path to God is in particular linked up to my wife, Jennifer. And that's true of me and me alone. I'm the only one who's married to her. So, you know, that's true of only me. Now, what is Jordan Peterson's path going to look like? I really don't know. I, I do not know. I mean, that having praying with people is, is the key thing. It could be that beginning a life of prayer is the key thing. I mean, you can begin a life of prayer by saying, God, if you exist, I'm not sure you do, but if you do, here I am. And I'm trying to communicate with you. I'm open to being in a relationship with you. And that can be a, a beautiful way to begin. I think sometimes to begin with practice is a better way than to kind of wait around for a lightning bolt to strike you. So what I mean by that is to start to do the practices you would do if you were a person of faith. And this, I think, in a way, fits really very comfortably into what Jordan Peterson says very often. I try to live as if God exists. I would say, more power to you. That's terrific. Now, if I try to live as if God exists, the one question I'm going to ask is, well, has God revealed anything about how we should follow him? And I think Peterson might say, and I certainly would say, yes, he has. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God's revelation that gives us the of what God wants us to to do and God wants us to be. And then if that's true, then you say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to follow God and I'm going to try to use Jesus as the way. Fair enough. Well, what does Jesus say about how to move towards God? Well, he says things like whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll live in him and he will live in me. So that suggests that we should if we're trying to follow God and in Jesus, that we should partake the meal that Jesus gave us the Last Supper, hold the Holy Eucharist, what Catholics would call the Mass. So I think that there's a very natural progression in a way from what he said explicitly to beginning to practice uh, the Catholic faith. And again, you know, he has to follow his conscience and he has to uh, be sensitive to what God is calling him to. 
But one thing that impresses me about him is that he seems willing to do a courageous, difficult thing if he thinks that's the right thing to do. And so I'm very confident that if he really begins to follow God and follow God in Christ, I, I, I see this leading towards a direction of greater participation in the body of Christ, which is the church. And I think maybe maybe a good example and, and witness to us who are believers of someone who's Face, you know, whatever the cost is, is living his faith in the public square, um, you know, with with uh, some of the stances that he's taken as far as um, the reality of uh, against coerced speech um, or just against totalitarian movements of the government. And he's he's from Canada, um, you know, something I think that we should be convicted of as people of faith too to say that, OK, that am I willing to, to, to take, a, take a stand? I've got the, the I have the added strength of my faith, my relationship with God and the sacraments and the witness of the saints and everything else. Um, you know, so so to be inspired by by someone who's taking that stand, maybe doesn't have the explicit faith that I have, um, but is is still willing to do it and still willing to pay the price. I think I think that's something that that we should definitely be challenged by and encouraged to uh, to to take more seriously. Yeah, no, I, I I'm with you. I'm with you for sure. I mean, I think that uh, you know when I when I correct Peterson, I feel like I have a lot more to learn from him than to correct. If that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> In other words, like he really is for me a great example of uh, courage and being a man of conviction, and I, I admire that a lot. And I'm afraid I have a lot of room to grow in terms of those things. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, Christopher Kayser, uh, you is the co-author with uh, Matthew Petrusic of Jordan Peterson: God and Christianity: The Search for a Meaningful Life. I really recommend this book. It's been a pleasure to read. If you want an introduction to Jordan Peterson. Um, if you're someone who's been been following Jordan Peterson for a while and wants to see more uh, the connection between him and Christianity and Catholicism and a life of faith, I think is no better place uh, to start uh, than this. Uh, so, Chris, it's so great having you on the show today. Uh, thank you so much for for taking the time for writing this book, and uh, and yeah, hope hope to speak again soon. Yeah, thank you, Father. I enjoyed our conversation too, and I'm very grateful to you for making time to talk with me about this book. Absolutely. And thank you all so much for joining us um, here at Catholic in America. And uh, for all those who are supporting us, who are uh, supporters on Patreon, who are following us online, thank you for your support. We can't do this without you. And until next time, we'll see you. God bless. Mm -hmm.